Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, welcoming you to episode 135 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which I and some friends are going to talk about Rainer Werner Fassbinder's epic eight-hour film, Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. This is a German TV series that he shot, five episodes of a planned eight, back in 1972 and 1973. It was uh, pretty well received at the time, but kind of fell into obscurity, as a lot of TV from that era did. And uh, it went on to become kind of a rediscovered sensation back in 2017 when it was restored and distributed for theatrical uh, showings back in 2017. And in 2018, the Criterion Collection put it out on a Blu-ray edition, and I know there's an also an Arrow limited edition uh, version that's out there that one of our guests, I think, was uh, watching it from. Uh, but we're going to be delving into this uh, very unusual, unique, and and I think the experience of all of us, pretty delightful and satisfying uh, work from Reiner Werner Fassbinder. So let's go ahead and get our guests introduced here, and we'll just get right into the conversation after that. So let's uh, begin with... Uh, making his back-to-back appearances from the previous episode to this one, Josh Hornbeck. Josh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be back. And uh, we're recording this in what feels like uh, quite some time, so it's it's weird to me to think that this is back-to-back. But uh, it's great to be back and uh, to be back talking about something that I love just unreservedly. And uh, the experience of watching this this week was... Uh, a wonderful balm to my soul. So uh, I can't wait to, to discuss this uh, work with you all. And uh, thanks for having me. For sure, Josh. Yeah, you've been one of my kind of faithful uh, sidekicks here talking about the Fassbinder. And he's the director we've covered more than any other in this particular podcast, just because he released so many films in the early <laughs> 1970s, you know. Yeah. So uh, definitely great to have you on. And uh, David Seeley is our other guest here, one of our other guests. we got uh, one more after that. So David, welcome to the show and nice to have you back on again. Yeah, it's nice to, nice to talk to you, David, and uh, the other chaps as well. Uh, it's been a little while since I've been on, but yeah, uh, right. it's uh, nice to be back. That's right. We did the episode on Sounder, I think it was back in, was it December or something like that? And so, uh, yeah. and I do want to take a minute to talk about your, your new podcasting venture. You are another one of my young protégés, <laughs> like, like Josh, <laughs> who went on to start his own podcast with Criterion Channel Surfing. I think there's a few others who kind of played their hand but uh, tell us just a little bit about film swap this is an episode or about what seven eight episodes in now yeah yeah we just started in the new year we, we actually planned to start it last year but you know it uh one thing uh and another we we kind of ended up putting it off to the new year but um definitely david uh, you were a great inspiration for it because i've enjoyed coming on your show so much over the last few years that uh I, I just wanted to keep talking, really. Hey, you, you get the bug. I totally understand it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been having fun. We're, we're, we've do, yeah, like you say, we're about seven shows in now. We just put a new one out this week. And uh, we're also doing little videos on our YouTube channel just to kind of mix it up a bit and have some fun. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been a great experience. Uh, and I, I think um, we're, we're even starting to get okay at it. <laughs> No, I, I've listened to well, what was the one you did with the high noon and um, mm. and what was the other one? The, the other uh, twelve angry men. Twelve angry men, yeah. And then you did the moral yeah. outrage, which was the devils and peeping tom. So those are the two that I've checked yeah. out so far, and nice work. And I definitely saw see you're kind of doing the the multi uh, social media reach there. You got the YouTube <laughs> thing going on, so 
pretty great yeah. uh, ambitious project i wish you all the best and and maybe oh, once you get you. to the guest episode uh thing maybe i'll be able to make a film swap cameo myself well actually yes i was meaning to catch up with you about that david and cool. and uh joshua and william as well i'm sure I'd, I'd like to reach out to all of you at some point and invite you to come on the show because we're we're getting to that point now where i think we're ready to mix it up a bit and bring some guests in to to uh you know do some guest swaps so yeah. uh, you guys are all welcome to come and join us that's excellent great. All right, well, we'll have contact information in the show notes if you want to find out where to, you know, locate the Film Swap podcast. But uh, again, great to have you, David. And our, our third guest, or plus myself, is William Remmers. And it's been quite a while, William, I think, since you've been on, but always a delight to have you. So how's, you, how's it going today, William? It's going great. I'm having a wonderful day. I feel a lot like Josh in that um, I'm so pleased to have been able to revisit this wonderful work. And yeah. to have done it, um, uh, unlike last time where I watched it in one sitting, I, I had it one, one, <laughs> consistently one a day, which I've, I like that particular tact for myself. I've done it with Le Vampire. I've done it without one where like I schedule myself very rigidly one a night and I'm going to do the exact one each evening and sleep on and think and live with the characters. Maybe someday I'll be brave enough to do it monthly like it was aired. And uh, feels feels great. And I have um, uh, one little bit of catch up, which is just to say that um, I know we were due to have a, an additional guest yes, today, yes. Mm-hmm. who I saw in person yesterday by complete coincidence. No kidding, that is and wild. So, yes. so I will tell you that I met up with our with our, our friend Jonathan Laubinger, mm-hmm. and he uh, ran into me at a screening at uh, New York uh, Lincoln Center uh, of. Trenke Lauken, which is the new film by Laura Citarella, produced mm-hmm. by El Pampero Cine, which produced La Flor, of which she was a producer, which has oh, okay. the same composer, two of the same stars, lots of, like, it's, if you've seen La Flor, you will recognize this film when you watch it, but it's still its own unique work, and so Jonathan ran into me there, and we had a lot of wonderful chats, there was an intermission, it's a four-hour film. And um, we talked a bit about eight hours, and I was like, oh, I don't want to spoil what I'll say tomorrow. But we got into a few things, and uh, I guess the upside is we can get into them now without Jonathan having to endure them twice. But he, he had, he had <laughs> yeah. some wonderful questions and, and feedback as well about the film. So if, I, if anything jumps out from my conversations yesterday, I'll be sure to pass them along. Yes, yeah, uh, definitely, and I definitely wanted to mention that John was planning on this until a kind of a family emergency thing came up, and so it's disappointing that he can't join us, but I totally understand his priorities and choices, wish him all the best, and uh, I'm sure he'll be listening in once this episode yeah, hits the airwaves. So, uh, yeah, so we've got a great crew here, and again, what a what a wonderful combination. That's very gratifying to me just to get the four you four of us together and uh, and uh, dig into this this beautiful work. I mean, it, it, it's had a, that same kind of reunion get together feel that you see watching this film, as so many of uh, Fassbinder's uh, familiar faces, actors from different films that he was making around the same time, pop up. Sometimes they're central characters like Hannah Shigula. Sometimes they're just little bit cameos and and short short appearances. Uh, 
but it's it's just a really fantastic experience. So um, let's just kind of get into the films. We've got a lot of movie to cover, and we do have a little bit of a tight schedule. We are, uh, as you may, you know, listeners may know, we've got Josh out there on the west coast of North America, David over there in England. So we really had to kind of find the right little slot to, to fit all those time zones together. And then I've got some things happening in about a little over an hour, so I've got to be able to make good use of this time. So it's kind of ironic that we're trying to squeeze eight hours of movie conversation into maybe just a little bit more of an hour. Um, you could almost call this a box set of sorts, even though it's not packaged that way. But you really do have five feature-length films originally made for television, uh, but they tell one long, continuous story. And, you know, they each episode sort of has its own little flavor and theme, but that they really do glide from one into the next. So uh, the way we're going to do it is just kind of, we're each going to take turns doing little intros for each episode, and then maybe just kind of do a take around uh, to try to capture some of the great, you know, favorite moments and ideas and, and textures of what makes this film uh, unique among Fassbinder's work, uh, because because it does have this kind of uplifting optimistic tone that isn't exactly the first adjectives you think of when you're talking about uh, your your classic standard Fassbinder film. So let's talk about eight hours don't make a day. I'll go so I'll get started with uh, the episode one intro. This is an episode titled Jochen and Marion. That's these are the two characters that you see if you're looking at the at least the cover of the Criterion Blu-ray, you see uh, Hannah Shigula. Anybody who's familiar with Fassbender's films would recognize her instantly. Gottfried John, I don't think he had done much with Fassbender before this, although I think he did some work in, was it Berlin, Alexanderplatz later. But they're kind of like the, the central couple of this film. Uh, Jochen is a man who works in a tool and die factory. He makes machine tools. Uh, he's a laborer. Uh, he's he's a tall guy. He's got some charisma to him. That um, he's basically just kind of getting started in life. He's a young adult, and uh, the film itself, the whole story, opens at uh, the celebration of uh, the grandmother's birthday party. I'm going to call her Oma, even though it's, I guess it's the German word for grandma, but to me she's Oma. Uh, there's a family celebration going on, and you already see right at the beginnings there's some tensions. There's the there's one couple which happens to be uh, Jochen's uh, older sister uh, Monica. Uh, she's married to a man named Harold, and there's a point at which uh, some champagne is spilled. A young girl named Sylvia laughs, and she immediately gets struck in the face by her father for laughing at an adult, which he considers completely disrespectful and out of line. It's his fatherly hand of discipline, but you already get the sense that while wow, there's there's tensions in the family and you can already if anticipate that this is going to take sort of a dark turn but that's not exactly where the film goes as we really get into some some nice setups as we're getting to meet these characters and they're they're fleshed out over the length of a pretty you know a long runtime for the story uh, but because the champagne's been been spilled and there's a need for some more refreshments Jochen heads out finds a local vending machine to buy some champagne which that is an interesting concept right there but uh, I digress and and that's where he meets up with Marion, the Hannah Shigula character, just a young woman who's looking for a jar of pickles. So pickles and champagne, I guess they go together. But they have a kind of a cute meetup there, uh, very spontaneously. Jochen invites uh, Marion to the, bar the birthday party, and that's really kind of what, what gets the whole story on its way. Uh, we find out later that Jochen's uh, factory workers, his guys, are 
being expected to to kind of up the production the the management is kind of putting pressure on them to to you know get the job done and there's a, perhaps a little bit of an incentive on the line for them but Yoken makes some innovations that allow the job to get done quickly and because of the increased productivity the workers kind of get the shaft from the bosses to say well we're not going to give you the incentive anymore since we don't need to really press you to get that extra production going so we 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 uh, sort of see right from the beginning that this is a story of a family and its relationships and the dynamics within it this young couple kind of falling in love you sort of see that emerging as as the, they have some banter and dialogue and then it's also set in this very realistic uh, everyday kind of workplace. Um, Marion herself works as kind of in a clerical role. She works at the uh, at a small local newspaper, taking classified ads. She has a co-worker played by the inimitable Erm Herman. Uh, her name is Ermgard in this film. And so we're getting to meet all these characters and just recognizing the tensions, the pressures that they're dealing with and how they respond to it in, in various ways. So that's my very quick little walk-in into the movie. Um, Josh, tell me just a little bit about some of your impressions. What, what stood out to you about this first episode, and how did you kind of first encounter it? Just kind of give us your little, you know, summary of, of part one of this five-part series. Yeah, you know, so I, I first saw the series at the Seattle Film Festival over the course of uh, three weeks. And so we watched uh, the first two parts one week, the second two parts the next week, and then the um, fifth part the final week. And um, it it has just lived with me as a, a series that uh, just brought joy to my life. Uh, I think I saw the first two parts on my birthday weekend as well. So my wife came with me and just we were enchanted and entranced by this, uh, this film. And... Uh, there was something about uh, coming back to the the theater with the same group of uh, moviegoers uh, each week as well to uh, gather together to see the, the the group of people and so and and I wasn't sure what I was getting I I knew that this was you know one of the uh, more joyful films in uh, Fassbender's catalog just from everything that I had heard uh, but. It's, that didn't prepare me for how delightful uh, the the characters are. And we still get these touches of menace. We still get Harald, who is uh, awful. And uh, I, I really appreciate that even in this first installment, we get to see the the joys of Oma and the way she relates to the family and we get to see the ways that um, she can put the more uh, self-important members of her family in their place uh, and and the way she embraces Monica and says oh no 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 yes yeah come on in you you I asked her to bring pickles, so that's this is the birthday present that I wanted. You know, just all mm -hmm. of these little things that are just so warm and inviting uh, about her and the way she has conducted her life, and and we see the the struggles of the the workers at the plant, and 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 Fassbender doesn't shy away from that, but we also see them working together to try to improve things for themselves, even though there are 
conflicts, even though there are disagreements about how to do that. Uh, and so even in this first episode, we get all of these, these things that I think become hallmarks throughout the series and be become threads that we follow. Uh, we get uh, Jochen and Marion, and, and we see just this, uh, the lightning bolt of uh, attraction, and, and not just attraction, but a, a recognition that, that there's something between them. Uh, that there's something deeper than just that that surface level attraction, and uh, I, I just I find this this entire uh, installment so captivating and engaging, and it's you know if if you're not engaged in these two hours, you're not going to want to keep coming back for the rest of it. And uh, as I rewatched it, I, you know, in our offline uh, conversations, as we were messaging each other, uh, William said. Uh, this reminded me why I watched it all uh, back to back. And as I was watching it, it was that same sense too, that uh, I just, I just want to live with these characters uh, <laughs> for a while and uh, getting to sit with them this week was uh, just wonderful. Great. Hey, David, do you want to go ahead and give us kind of a first opening take here, whether it's the episode one or just kind of your, your familiarity with, with the series? Well, really, um, my familiarity, sort of familiarity, <laughs> with the uh, Fastbinder was was relatively limited before I saw this. I obviously mm. knew that sort of the key titles like Eva Braun and Ali uh, Fear Eats the Soul and a few others. Um, so when I saw this, I basically bought it blind uh, when the Arrow Academy set came out uh, a few years ago. I just bought it blind just because it sounded interesting and I wanted to check it out. And I, I can't tell you just how absolutely how I love this film or films. I think they're just absolutely wonderful. It kind of really surprised me because I guess my I, my association with Fastbinder up to this up to that point had been for those key films and his certain style that he had and and uh, the sort of the feel and tone of his film. So this one just completely blew me away. And I absolutely loved it because it's just so positive and, and life affirming. And it deals with, um, with uh, you know, really important things uh, in terms of its representation of uh, working people's lives and, and how they, uh, the struggles that they have and the way that they deal with those things in a really positive way. And it kind of, uh, you know, it really uh, demonstrates uh, like, for instance, if you look at someone like uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who went through a little period where he very much was uh, trying to present sort of leftist ideology and sort of um, those things, but he does it in a very obtuse and, uh, you know, in a, in a way that isn't necessarily very accessible. But this film is, is very, very accessible, very down-to-earth, very human, and deals with everything in a really positive way. And I think that's what I, I really love about it, is that uh, it, it deals with these issues and, and shows how people can really uh, uh, make positive changes when they work together and they uh, discuss their, their differences in, in a positive way. So, um, yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, were there any particular moments in the first film that you wanted to kind of highlight or or 
emphasize. Otherwise, we can kick it over to William. But yeah, just wondered if you have any particular, yeah, as as the story well, gets unfo- unfolding. Mm-hmm. The thing I love about it is just that I, I think I, today, just in preparation, I was reading uh, the um, essay on the Criterion Collection website. As I mentioned, I have the Arrow edition, mm-hmm. so I, I don't have that one. But I, I just they usually have the essays on the on their web pages, and I had a read, and one thing that struck me. Uh, that was that really is good at summing this up is uh, the producer when he was trying to uh, convince Fastbinder to take on this project and work with them. He described this as a uh, as a occupation of bourgeois uh, genre, <laughs> and and I think that that is perfectly sums it up because he's taken these sort of um, you know family kind of soap opera sort of style which we have a lot here in Europe like in the UK we've got Coronation Street and EastEnders and things like that and it very much sort of appropriates that style and uses that really accessible familiar form of television sort of uh, you know drama and uh, sort of very subtly uses it to to bring these ideas to the to the surface and like I said in a very uh, positive life affirming uh, way and it's just the kind of thing that you don't see when you see represented in films like things like union issues and things like that they're always dealt with you know if you see a film about unions it's usually something like Norman Jewison's Fist or or more recently Martin Scorsese's uh, you know The Irishman where they talk about unions but they always associate it with organized crime and corruption and right all these picket lines and, and scabs yeah, and, and violence yeah, and right, contra- right. Contra- confrontations and violence mm-hmm. uh, but the reality is this film very much presents it in in the real terms in real concrete way with real working people showing the kind of issues that they can face in terms of their dealings with management and the way that they can be exploited or treated unfairly but it also shows how you can deal with that effectively, you know, the power of collective bargaining mm-hmm. and the power of uh, just sticking together and supporting your co-workers and all those things that uh, that unions are really all about. You see that here in this film presented in a really positive and uplifting, uh, entertaining way uh, and, and without hitting anyone over the head with it either. It just brings the, the ideas to the surface uh, usually it's Marion who uh, says that has little conversations with Yokin over the dinner table uh, and expresses these ideas in really uh, simple, uh, accessible way. And I think that's a real strength of this film. I mean, I think they should teach us in high school. It should be on the curriculum that they should get kids to watch all five of these films and have conversations around them and discuss them because I think it's that effective in talking about these things in a, in a very accessible way. I would totally support that. <laughs> that would be a fantastic addition to any curriculum. So, well, William, I, I've already picked up on your zeal. You you consumed this in one ravenous sitting <laughs> on your first encounter. You've slowed the pace down a little bit. Tell us just a little bit about your kind of opening thoughts on the film uh, beyond what you've already said, and then maybe talk a little bit about this first episode. Yes, of course. That first day when I watched it, it was 2019, and I have the Arrow set as well, which, if my memory serves, uh, predated the Criterion, so I actually got that before there was the Criterion anyway. Um, And to that end, I um, 
will say that I would prefer to watch that Berlin Alexanderplatz and World on a Wire on those editions because they play at the at the correct speed. And um, it's worth noting that those those folks who want to um, who might for me anyway, I definitely struggle when a song I know is playing at the wrong speed because the pitch is different. And so, uh, in addition to that, you'll save about 15 minutes. So, uh, so those of you who wanna who wanna see the the um, the proper speed, unfortunately, because of the fact that it's a TV project, when it played at a different frame rate um, in different countries, they this is above my pay grade, but they cannot seem to replicate that on a U.S. release. It's like 24 it. frames in America, 25 frames in Europe. Is that kind of something right, like that? Right, yeah. So, So with releases like Berlin Alexanderplatz and Decalogue, the U.S. Criterion releases play at not just a different speed, but a different pitch, which um, is tricky for me because, I'll, again, if it's a song I know, it means that if you watch the Criterion of Petra von Kant, Smoke It's In Your Eyes plays at a different pitch than it does in this film. And... Um, if you move that down to the performances, that means that people are performing at a slightly different speed than they actually did. And I wonder if there's something deeply philosophically troubling about that, but I'll, I'll leave that. I don't, I don't want to bring in any sort of um, purist take. I think that it's very easy to enjoy something that's playing slightly different speed, but I prefer this arrow release and I'm glad I have that one. And when I watched that, um, for the first time and I, I just knew I was going to watch the next episode as soon as the first one ended and the crucial reason for that is um, the music by uh, Fuzzy uh, which is who's credited uh, as Jean Japoin but um, is actually the famous composer Fuzzy and uh, that the music in this um, was intoxicating to me which I think is another reason why I'm, I'm heralding the release of the Arrow version, not just the source music, but also the music written for the film, which um, that waltz theme, which opens, but then plays in its fullest form in the end credits. Right. And everything that that represents, everything that that mm -hmm. opening titles and ending credit sequence represents in terms of what it's showing, like the beginning of the day and the end of the day. Mm -hmm. of, yeah. of the, And remind, actually it reminds me that there are people that work uh, for this factory that probably work night shifts and to handle shipping and deliveries that we never even see because we see trucks coming in and we see the, the smoke ever coming out of the stacks. But that theme is so effervescent and vibrant. It has an incredibly detailed orchestration with double-tongued brass going with really challenging material to play. And, and it's, it's a waltz where there are twice... A measure of t a measure of two beats as opposed to three, so you get this feeling, a slight lopsided moment that rushes you to the next beat. And additionally intoxicating are the fact that the two climaxes, the one of them happens every episode at the title of the film zooming in at you, and in all but two of the episodes, Erm um, Hermann's credit gets that same treatment. She gets mm. the and Frank Oz as Yoda credit of like no here's but here's the the mm -hmm. person. Um, and I'll point out that her name, Ermgard Erlkenig, the Earl King, um, reference to the, the folk character immortalized in Schubert's art song, is a clear in-joke where when we first meet her, the camera, uh, as it does so much through this film, just going left and then right again and left and right again, passes oh, yeah. by 
passes by Fraulein Erlkerig on her nameplate. And that is one of the many things in this film that point to its incredible sense of humor, which exhibits itself in sight gags and puns and characterizations. And like every form of comedy is exploited at some point in this eight, eight hours. And this is just one of the great examples of it. And even that end credits hints at the overall sense of humor of the project, which um, does, though the piece is occasionally troubling, there's something so optimistic in in some of those uh, regards, which is slightly contradictory to where the next three episodes that were never made may have had. But at least it gives us something to have, uh, a rug to have pulled out from under us later. The uh, experience I had this time watching it every day allowed me to focus more on the individual episodes and in terms of how they were structured and feeling like I actually observed naturally a greater difference between the episodes than when I watched it all in one day. And I was able to think about, first of all, the fact that the title of each episode is always crucial. It's not always the entire or exact or primary focus in a way that one might expect, but it points our eyes somewhere. And mm -hmm. episode one being Hyokin and Marion, um, that's what takes the cake for me, is how wonderful the meet-cute at the automat is. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the beauty of the moment when Oma says that you didn't need to, this type of girl, you didn't need to lie to her about the car. There's this yeah. inter, inter exchange mm -hmm. where he's lied to her about his car, which is actually Harold's car being his own. And Oma's like, no, this girl is the real deal. And Grandma and Marion and... Um, these two lead couples, really, Grandma Oma and Gregor and Marion and Jochen, who are the first two episode titles, are the four people credited in the opening credits. And I think that's mm -hmm. a very crucial gesture as well, that like these are um, the heroes of this piece that we're going to focus on. And seeing those relationships develop, the fact that Grandma's meet-cute with Gregor happens when they're telling off a narc. Some narc who's, <laughs> who's razzing children. And it's perfect. It's just, it's perfectly lovely. And this whole episode is filled with, in spite of the moments of darkness here and there, so much romantic joy. I love Jochen saying, she says, I'm no angel. And he says, to me, to me, you are already. They've just mm -hmm. met. The chemistry is palpable. Who can hate Uli Lommel's cameo, who says basically oh. nothing, but <laughs> I don't like cognac. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a it's it's one of those moments where the casting for Fassbender heads is perfect but even if you're not just it, he always has the right person for the job mm -hmm. and all things considered um, the balance of that with the labor issues and the incredible sequences involving the heroic scrapping of uh, material makes this feel like oh we're heading to this sort of episodic journey where there's going to be a bunch of episodic labor struggles that build and build and build. And this particular one about the scrap is, is a particularly wonderful gesture where we already start to see the use of the score music, which at times is incredibly intense. We get those like Ironside cues that happen as we zoom in towards someone's face in this particular thread, usually Jochen's face. And the music plays very outre blaring sirens and electronic whizzes and these very esoteric textures which really really create this sense of slight unease and discomfort that um occasionally 
remind you of the alienation effects that he was so inspired by from Bertolt Brecht, that like, these are still going to appear here where you might not expect them. And in addition, he's got the PBS music. There's these cues that just feel like right out of any wonderful, mm-hmm. sweet PBS family show with swooning clarinets and gentle guitar lines. Meanwhile, all of that source music, which from reading the Arrow booklet, apparently for TV movies, you didn't have to pay for it. So it checks out why they... Well, that's go, convenient. Yeah. They go so hard. Yeah. I don't know what that the rights issues for that nowadays must have been a nightmare for home release. But the fact that you get in this episode... Leonard Cohen and Janis Joplin and Neil Young, and you're going to get the platters and all, all Rolling these Stones, Lady it's, Jane, yeah. It, yeah. it is unstoppable. Like, it's probably one of the <laughs> best sor- sourced soundtracks of needle drops. But they're not needle drops in a non-diegetic sense, which I often find are a, a crutch that a lot of directors use. In yeah, this especially case, nowadays, yeah. yeah. Especially nowadays. And, and in this case, they are always... Like, whereas the music written for the film is almost always too uncomfortably close, the music that's provided by uh, contemporaneous or pre-existing artists from the era, era, maybe 10 to 15 years before, all of that music is always very baked into the world, almost surreptitious, very subtle. It's playing on a jukebox at the bar or something like that. Right, right. Always source music that... um, feels lived in and is notable because it's almost always english language very often american yeah some canadian british acts so there's there's a, a funny texture there um, there's there's a, a french song that plays twice you don't hear too much in the way of german pop material so you almost wonder like what kind of um, cultural imperialism is happening uh one wonders or is it just a an escape from that particular type of life for a type of music that lives elsewhere. There's a maybe a more anthropological, musicological research to be done there. Or maybe these are just tunes Fassbinder likes because he's used one of them in another film, as I mentioned before. Yeah. So uh, he's always had a great taste in tunes. Uh, think of World on a Wire has some of the best music ever in it. So um, no arguments for me there. All of that created a first episode that was completely filled with joy. And as Jochen and Marion tell each other they love each other and that whimsical music plays which always segues perfectly from mm-hmm. that last cue it's that cue mm-hmm. in that tells you the end credits is about to happen and you just mm-hmm. cling on because you know this is the last 15 seconds it's never a surprise because the way it sinks into it is always through the same method and this first time it happened i said i'm addicted i had no idea an hour and 40 minutes had gone by i thought it was mm-hmm. an hour or less and i said oh i'm gonna watch the next one and then it was the whole thing that first time um, so I'll get more into as we proceed some individual sure. episode identities, but this first episode to me is is just un- unadulterated happiness. Yeah, well, we'll get to that second episode in just a second, but I do want to find where did Fassbender get that nice looped remix of Me and Bobby McGee? Do you notice how it kind of kept going to that one section over and over again for the sake of the music there, I guess, and for the movie? But yeah, some very interesting stuff. I love that Spooky Tooth song too, uh, Hangman, Hang My Shell Upon the Tree. So anyways, maybe we'll get back to the music. But David, you're going to walk us through the, uh, at least the intro to episode two, Omar and Gregor. So give us a little uh, preview of what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. The second episode is actually my favorite of the bunch. I think um, it might be fair to say because there's five uh, separate films here. I don't know 
um, whether they would each of them stand up separately on their own as films. Like if someone could sit and watch one of them without having seen the others for context. But I think this second episode is just absolutely lovely. I'll I'll say it right out that Oma, Grandma, I'm completely in love with the woman. I think she's just absolutely an amazing character and just absolutely... um, uh, owns this film and inspires is so inspiring. Um, the second episode focuses on on Grandma and Gregor. That's what it's called, uh, and this is the the man that she picked up in the park in the first episode, uh, which is a wonderful moment and establishes her character really well. Um, but this uh, film focuses on now that Grandma and Gregor are together, they've uh, they've decided to move in together. And so the first part of the film is uh, about their searching for an apartment to live in. And they've uh, looked at their finances and, well, Grandma has, to be fair, because she <laughs> she very much, you know, Gregor just seems to kind of go along with everything and just kind of go, yeah, yeah, all right, go on then. Uh, and she sort of uh, looks at the finances and says, okay, this is how much we can afford to spend on a flat so let's go and see what we can do about finding somewhere. So they they go around town and have various uh, exchanges with landlords and estate agents uh, trying to find a flat that fits within their budget. Uh, but what happens in the second part of the film is that uh, uh, there's a sub uh, subplot with uh, Monica, who's the the um, the granddaughter, uh, Jochen's sister. Um, and uh, she's having some uh, issues because she wants to go out and start working again uh, after raising their daughter for s- several years. And uh, But she's having some childcare issues. So suddenly Grandma comes up with a brilliant idea, which is to uh, reappropriate a, a vacant library in the neighborhood where the kids are all playing out in the street, out in the traffic, and it's quite dangerous. Uh, and she decides that she's going to turn it into a nursery. But of course, she hasn't got, uh, um, it's not official and it hasn't been sanctioned by the uh, municipal, uh, you know, government there. They they haven't allocated this space to do that. But of course... Who's going to let a little thing like licensing and authorization stand <laughs> in the way of this brilliant and much needed idea, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Well, she certainly isn't going to let anything stand in her way because that's who she is. She basically, she sees a problem and uh, she just goes out there and just says, right, let's just do this. Let's just, uh..." so she doesn't take any sort of excuses. And what what I love about this too, and throughout this episode, you get a lot of times, uh, even when you're, you're not just Grandma and Gregor, but when uh, you see with um, Jochen and Marion and uh, the chaps in the workplace, they all have this attitude sometimes where they'll be sitting around sort of complaining about things, whether it's the expense of the taxis or how much uh, rents are or uh, their situation at work. In this one, there's one of the chaps, um, the the foreman from from the shop floor has passed away and uh, so the manager asks this chap basically just to take on the foreman responsibilities in the job, but they don't offer to um, give him a promotion or give him any extra money or anything. They just kind of say, oh, you're doing that now. And it's not really fair. And they have these discussions. But throughout the course of the film, a lot of times people will say, well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. 
And that statement seems to come up a lot. Gregor says it a lot as well when they're on the bus or when they're in the taxi. He always says, well, that's just the way things are. But Grandma is very much this inspiration because she's an older lady, she's retired, and rather than just sitting around and just accepting things, she's a go-getter and she just goes out there and she just says, right, how are we going to solve this problem? What do we need to do to, make, to get a better result and get a better outcome? And so that's what she's all about. And that's why she's lovely. And she's very funny. And she's uh, very feisty. And, uh, and she always seems to, to call things out for what they really are instead of just accepting that, uh, you know, that's just the way things are. She says, yes, that is the way things are, but it's because you let it be that way. And what can we do to solve this problem? So by the end of the film, they basically establish this nursery. But then, of course, the uh, authorities come down on them because there's people in the community who start complaining as people do they just sit around and gossip and complain uh, and that that comes to a head when the police come and take grandma and gregor away to the police station and they say you've got to close this place down but what they do instead is they get organized in the community some of the parents who are thankful for the for the nursery they all get together and they do a little bit of sort of positive direct action yeah. and they get all the kids together and they go down to city hall and they get the kids to start painting and playing in the hallway down at the at city hall and they start painting pictures on the wall and the kids are running around uh, and so it's this little uh, wonderful uh, sort of warm-hearted sort of direct non-violent intervention mm -hmm. that these that these kids and these parents do uh, and as a result the, the people down at city hall have to sit and take notice of the situation and and negotiate an outcome that is uh, uh, suitable for everyone. So by the end of it, we have Grandma and Gregor who now have a place to live and have jobs because they're going to get paid to run the nursery. And then uh, we also, uh, it means that Monica now has a little bit of freedom to leave her daughter in safe hands so she can go and look to see if she can fulfill some of her needs as well. So yeah. uh, that's a very, very quick uh, summary of the second episode. Yeah, yeah. And definitely Oma and Gregor did try to do it the conventional way. They went to the commissioner and they gave made their case. And he, of course, bureaucratically brushed them off, which says, okay, well, I guess we had to do it our way this time. So, yeah, uh, Josh, tell me a little bit of your impressions about episode two and the relationship of Oma and Gregor or anything else that stood out to you about this particular segment. Well, and, you know, I think that... Uh, if the first one had entranced me uh, when I saw it originally, uh, this is the one that sealed the deal because this is such a, a absolutely delightful installment, and uh, I think more than any of the other installments, this squarely focuses on two separate characters. Uh, I think um, while the others might have diversions and uh, subplots with the other characters. This one is, is fully Oma and Gregor's story. And this is hilarious at times. It is charming. It is, I think it is foundational to understanding Oma's uh, uh, way of, of seeing the world. I really like what William said just a little bit ago that that Oma and Marion are are linked in some ways because both of them throughout the course of the series will 
challenge this notion um, that that so many of the characters have that that this is just the way things are, and um, and we get to see that in such a concrete way. Um, I think it's the wigs, actually. That's that's yes. their vibe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, the I, I I was doing a little research into the the cast and their backgrounds, and you know, Oma, uh, who is. Uh, played so wonderfully by Luis Ulrich. Luis Ulrich was a, um, just this incredible, uh, Austrian actress who had been working since, you know, 1932, uh, in a variety of roles. She had been offered a contract by Louis B. Mayer, uh, and turned it down. And so she stayed in Europe for her acting career? She stayed in Europe, yeah. And um, they, they show a little clip of one of her films in the first episode. Mm-hmm. They're sitting around watching a film on television, and that's her on the television. I wondered if yes, there was. I, I didn't think it was just some random broadcast. It's uh, Max I, Max Ophuls Liebelei is the film. Oh, oh, I know <laughs> Max Ophuls too. Okay, wonderful little tidbits there. Okay, cool. So, so she was doing that, um, and then uh, Werner Fink, who plays Gregor was a, a cabaret performer during uh, uh, Nazism and was constantly poking at the Nazis and ended up in a concentration camp for a little bit, but they couldn't really prove that he was saying anything bad about the Nazis. Um, and he had developed this kind of stuttering, stammering persona, which allowed him to say things and criticize uh, the a Nazi court jester type of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you have these performers and, and really, you know, I, I think that, that, as William's saying again, to, to Fassbender's credit for the casting, you have all of the Fassbender regulars and the Fassbender repertory here, plus these great German actors uh, who have, you know, were legends of stage and screen, and they blend so seamlessly into uh, into their roles and into this, this story, and they fit together so beautifully here. And I think you have... You see, especially the in the older generation, these um, these stage and screen legends, um, and and of course we get you know some of the the Fassbender repertory in some of those older roles too. But but it's just it's lovely to see, especially in some of these broader roles, uh, and uh, to see Oma and Gregor really take center stage. It is so heartwarming, so joyous, so. Uh, moving by the end to see the way that the community rallies around them because they want their kids safe as well. And, you know, uh, I, I also, I, I love the way that the, the continued labor struggles um, are, are in the background, but it's still there and we're still going to continue to see this. Um, and then one final little thing. Um, I just, I love the, the ways in which the, um, the zoom is used in the series and the way Fassbender and his camera operator and uh, director of photography will compose a shot and will will see the will be panning across the room and then suddenly we'll zoom in on somebody in the background and get their reaction and then we'll come back and move move along and it's just it's effortless it's gliding it changes the composition up as he moves the camera around yeah it's just it's it's masterful i mean that's that's an overarching thing about the seri- the the entire series but you know it, i think as as you 
start to notice as you get into the the things you start to notice it more and more and uh, uh, I remember especially noticing it as uh, Oma and Gregor are leaving the housing or the the government office for the first time after they've tried to um, secure their the the uh, the authority to make their kindergarten and uh uh, they've been rejected and as they're walking away the camera follows them for a moment and then it pans back up to the office window where we see the government functionary who's rejected them and zooms in on his face as he watches them leave um, just masterful little strokes like that throughout mm -hmm. William anything that you want to add to our discussion of episode 2 uh, give us uh, some of your insights there yeah I've got to just say Oma's hot <laughs> Oma is like a, like like actively hot, and the, my the hottest Oma moment for me is when everybody's. Uh, I think it's actually like an episode from 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 now when they're painting her flat, and she's like oh, yeah. the mm -hmm. only one not covered in paint is and is laying down some serious facts. Oma's hot, and I'm gonna also come in and just say everybody's hot. Uh, pretty much, is, <laughs> but especially especially Jochen and Marion. Oh yeah. Oh my God, the two of them. Oh my god. I just I can't I can't get enough of it. And the other thing is the costume design in this entire mm. thing. I mean, the Jochen thing blew my mind cuz I I'm pretty much exactly like the shape of Godfrey John. And I'm like, mm -hmm. "Oh, I have to I have to get these particular tailored pants and shirts." <laughs> cuz I'm like, "Oh yeah, like this is why everything I have looks terrible because I it wasn't designed." And that's the beauty of a of a costume design like this is where Every single piece was clearly intentional in design, and a lot of it was tailored. But it all just looks like, oh, this is just what everybody wears. And it never yeah, feels just like... just working class garb, you know, just... But mm -hmm. gosh, oh my god, everybody is, <laughs> is banging. But I have my... One of my takeaways from this episode when I was uh, watching it night by night was just that this script is astounding. I was speaking mm -hmm. of the comedy and a lot of the verbal wordplay especially the ways in which the edit will in reinforce them. So many scenes do end with a punchline of some kind. And sometimes the cut to the next scene is comedically abrupt, or sometimes there's some weird lingering long thing, like looking at the um, the waitress and just holding on her for a minute. Whatever it is that just is like, it's like, and now we're going to look at this person for a second. And so you never quite know what to expect, but the, the script stuck out to me in this episode as being among the best ever and it's belie Fassbinder's tradition as a theater writer and director and I am never somebody that believes that stagey is an insult when it comes mm -hmm. to film as a big pre-code head I take a lot of umbrage with those letterbox reviews that are saying it's stagey so it's bad and it's like that that's question begging that's assuming a conclusion we haven't all agreed upon mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. truly a lot of times the most powerful thing to me is being able to see two actors deliver a scene without anything interrupting it not, especially not my eyeline and being able to see that emotion develop in real time felt really clear here and I'm going to contrast that with the next episode in a moment. But this felt like there were a, a, a high amount of wonderful real moments of dialogue, acting, beautiful structure of repartee, as well as very subtle things people could say that really gave you a lot more insight into the character. The characters here bloom triply from the first episode. 
And I don't think Fassbender's characters um, are usually anything but rich, but in this miniseries, the amount of time we're able to spend with them allows these characters to feel so real that as Josh has said, I just want to live with them. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to know all of these people. So that's my, that's my, m- one of my highlights here for this episode. And it's, it's sh- what, what a delight are all those kids running into the, the kindergarten. <laughs> oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Well, they're, they're kind of given it the sort of the side eye and then the one brave soul sort of crosses the street and then they all sort of flood in. And it's just, yeah, the music, the accompaniment and the fact that this little pipe dream is becoming a, a reality. is just a very exhilarating moment. I agree. On one hand, though, I was a bit disappointed because but, but after the first hour of the film, I wanted Grandma to come and live with me. <laughs> that was how I felt. So I was kind of like, I hope all that doesn't work out. So That's right. I've got a flat available. Or I can get a room, you know, clear it out, you know, get the kids bunking up or whatever. <laughs> All right. We'd make it work. For sure. Well, Josh, I'm going to kick it back, back over to you to walk us into episode three, which is Franz and Ernst. This is kind of where the, the labor uh, side plot really takes over and, and kind of becomes center stage. So kind of give us a little walkthrough of what happens in Franz and Ernst. Yeah, well, before we get into the labor uh, portion of it, uh, just going off of what uh, Dave was saying about uh, wanting Oma to live with uh, with you... You know, uh, the part of the episode, part of the the more family-centered portion of it, which is much smaller in this episode, Jochen's parents, uh, Wolf and Kath, are uh, living in essentially an empty house because Grandma has left, uh, Oma has left, and uh, Jochen is spending most of his time with Marion. And uh, Wolf, who uh, often fought with Oma, almost constantly uh, while she lived there uh, is now irritated and angry that uh, he doesn't have Oma there to fight with and is uh, is upset that uh, she isn't there anymore and uh, it's a it's a really charming reversal there um, and we get a little bit of that in the last episode as well where Kath points out that you, you know you're just gonna be upset and you're gonna you're gonna miss her you just you you know and uh, I, I, and, I, and Wolf is a pretty good ranter, you know. I mean, yeah. when he gets wound up, he can really go. So if he doesn't have that sparring partner, he mm-hmm. is kind of without purpose, isn't well, he? Well, and I love how she, how Kath can just kind of undercut him, and and, oh, yeah. and undercut that bluster, and get at what's really going on, um, mm-hmm. and say, you know, you're not really angry about this. You're actually just sad. And then he's like, Yeah, you're right. And and I and I I think. To me, that's such a lovely, lovely thing because it would be easy to uh, compare him to a character like Harold or some of the other more um, uh, destructive characters. Uh, there aren't many in this series, but uh, you really see how good-hearted he is, and uh, I love getting to see you know the sadness in him in this uh, episode as well, and. Uh, how how empty the house feels for him and uh uh, i just i find that really charming and really really sad as well um and uh yokon uh is is trying to to figure out um trying to get some ideas about how to how to how to solve some of the issues at work uh because they want france uh who's kind of the senior worker on the floor, they want him to be appointed as the permanent foreman. He's been doing a good job with them. Uh, he he didn't finish his foreman's training, but he's gone back to it. 
So they, they want him there. Uh, but France has been told that the company isn't going to hire uh, an internal candidate. They want to do outside candidates. Uh, the the men who work that shift, they don't want that. And uh, Jochen has has found that Marion has, has given him good advice about how to... Um, how to respond to the company when the company's pressuring them before. And, uh, you know, she had kind of given him the inspiration to, to resist when they were going to not be paid their bonuses. So there, so he's, he's getting ready to go to see Mari and, and, uh, find out, maybe get some ideas about what they can do. And, uh, he, uh, he stops by home, and Mom has made some dinner, his his favorite cabbage rolls, and there's a lovely, lovely bit there <laughs> as he goes from house to house, because he's called over to see Grandma. She has cabbage rolls for him, and he goes to, to Marion, and she's made cabbage rolls. So it's 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 delightful bits of, uh, of comedy there. Uh, so there, there are really some really fun bits uh, with the family throughout as... Uh, Jochen navigates all of these things as he uh, navigates his relationship with Marion. It's it's charming. It's uh, it's really it's really lovely. But at the the factory, they they really want Franz as their foreman. But it is turns out that he's not good with math, and uh, he gives a wrong calculation for a part, and the part uh, has to be sent back. And the supervisor tells them that, look, that's not going to work for us. He's not going to be able to be uh, uh, the foreman. And so they they all uh, are still trying to encourage him, or, or Jochen's still trying to encourage him. And uh, Franz is, is bereft. He's heartbroken. He's very, very frustrated. And they get a new foreman. Uh, the foreman seems like a decent guy. Everybody, though, is giving him the cold shoulder. They've decided they're going to resist. They're not going to talk to him. They're going to try to make his life miserable until uh, Franz can pass his certification. They'll try to find somebody to help him out with math. And uh, eventually, you know, through some, some different things, we see the new foreman standing up for the men. We see the new foreman taking the blame for something that wasn't his fault. And they discover that he's actually a pretty good guy and that he wants there to be good relationships between management and the, the workers. And they propose that, hey, can you help Franz? Can you help him with his math? Um, he really wants to be a foreman. And he says, yeah, that's great. I'd love to. I don't actually want to be a foreman. I want to do something else. I, want, I, I felt like this would be the best way for me to get into the company. And so they work together. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a lovely way of seeing the, the foreman, the workers working together to get the things that they want. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful look at kind of this, this, this look at solidarity. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind yeah. of like this uh, juxtaposition of a kind of what was a passive-aggressive and ultimately destructive uh, 
retaliation from yeah. the workers. I mean, that that plant manager is kind of a nasty character. You know, yeah, he, he is. he's not just like, well, sorry, Franz isn't the best choice for the foreman. It's, it's really kind of condescending, sneering. Mm-hmm. Why who do why do you think this oaf should step into a leadership yeah. role? And so that does kind of get the workers, you know, hackles up, and they said, well, we're not going to let that official policy. We have to hire somebody from outside to be the new foreman. So that that gets that kind of rebellious uh, streak mm-hmm. going there. But once they find out that that's only going to mess things up for everybody, you can take a more constructive approach. That to me, that sort of seemed like the the moral of the story. Again, it's not it's not heavy handed or preachy, but it's kind of like you know we could do this together. We could do this in kind of a more of a, uh, a tense or alienating way, and, and that that was kind of the, the the uplift I got from that little episode. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the final things, um, you know, Oma and Gregor, uh, Oma's sister Gregor in the the previous episode, after we find a place to live, we need to find a mission. We need to find uh, something to do that will uh, give our life purpose. And they start that with the building the kindergarten. But... Oma continues to find missions in her life and continues to find schemes and plots and uh, ways for her to uh, make her life better or make other people's lives better and to uh, give her life meaning. And uh, in this case, uh, she, uh, uh, when she knows that, that Wolf is upset that, uh, that uh, she's no longer there, she decides to, um, put out an ad for a grandma for hire, and uh, <laughs> it does not go as she expected. So <laughs> it's a delightful little scene, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, William, want to give us any highlights from episode three or any moments that uh, stood out to you? I, uh, I think Ernst is hot. <laughs> I think he's, he's such a babe. And you know what? Yeah. I, I think there's something really telling about the ways in which characters that are possibly going to be antagonistic in some Mm -hmm. way are revealed to not be is a really important part of the structure of this it's going to lead up to uh klaus lovich at the very end of the series um and his character but the uh the point is i think at that level you'll see that at the upper management level you'll see that they would still only look out for themselves but that change can still be made in these middle class slightly more upper level positions that can be in favor of everybody and hopefully it's an inspiring moment that's saying that yeah you might actually find there's somebody there to to help you uh, my big takeaway from this episode was that the blocking is incredible and we've had some comments about the blocking before mm-hmm. but there are two sequences in particular which to me are intentionally similar to the point that i couldn't stop laughing uh, there are moments in this episode where I think the dialogue gets into that Brechtian flatness, anticipating a Twin Peaks style, where the dialogue is almost too straightforward. I was thinking particularly about an exchange between Monica and Manfred that felt like that. Like it was a little like, oh, this isn't how real people would speak. This is more Katzelmacher all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And But e- <laughs> even with that being the case, the blocking will still remain interesting for the camera and the actors. And the two sequences in question, which I'm sure you might remember... One is around the, the table in the, in the dining hall at work, where it pans across, going from one side to the other. You have one character who I'll point out, this is the character of Giuseppe, whose name is spelled wrong in the end credits, which I think is very interesting, because he's a character that is 
indiscriminately and with great discrimination called Greek or Italian by the different characters, even the ones who defend him. And mm -hmm. so that it's amusing to me that his name is spelled Guiseppe in the end credits, though it's clearly Giuseppe uh, otherwise. So there's still even maybe some... Um, maybe even unintentional problematic uh, stuff going on there. But mm -hmm. that character, and then of course, our, uh, we have Ali. We've got we've got our yes. man showing up. Uh, <laughs> and the two of them, they deliver these lines that are um, asking for translations on certain terms that are being said in, in the conversation. And it happens mm -hmm. twice. The exact sequence of camera movements happens twice, for, almost for comedic effect. The same thing happens again, slightly more subtly and slowly, in the office of the manager, where the manager is on the phone revealing that um, France was the one who made this error that had been reported, um, this one tiny error that caused a lot of problems. So while they're, the four men are in that room campaigning for him, the manager's explaining this and the music's getting scary. And the camera goes across the faces of the four guys and then it goes behind their backs in between their necks at the manager. And then it happens again. And then it happens again, but then it's incomplete. And then it does something else and then it finishes the movement. And it is so funny. It is so weird. Like <laughs> yeah. once once you realize, like, oh, we're we're doing this exact set of very specific camera movements again. Um, that second shot of the four guys is almost a punchline because the four of them are completely silent, listening to this revelation. And at the same time, you will doubt yourself: is it actually just the same shot again? And that particular weird, uncanny valley moment of blocking, where a shot is completely recreated. I think has the exact correct psychological effect on the audience while still having this playful quality where experimentation is being had with where people are. There's another great moment where um, Franz's wife is upset in the foreground crying. Jochen and Marion are in the background and th that shot holds for as long as it needs to until it finally pulls in on them where they de declare that they are the heroes and they are here to save the day. And there's so much intentionality in in the movements like that to even the point when then it cuts back to Franz's wife and she has an almost comical amount of tears coming down her face. I cannot help but sometimes find that there is a slight sense of humor in Fassbinder's particular chaotic uh, visual rhetoric. So um, I'm all for it. And this episode to me was a masterpiece of blocking. Well, and this just brings to mind just the incredibly prolific rate at which Fassbender was doing his work. I mean, this is five you know feature-length films uh, shot in this you know, and released within a series of months, and he's already done Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant and The Merchants of Four Seasons the year before that. You know, I mean, this this guy was just absolutely blazing, and you're right, his fluidity, his confidence of just putting all these subtle touches, all these in-jokes mm. that are there to be noticed and, and admired and appreciated by anybody who's paying close enough attention. And, and, and you know, he was not emptying his well. He, he had ideas and techniques and, and flourishes that, uh, you know, again, <laughs> how often do you think about an eight-hour movie uh, inviting rewatches? And yet this one is absolutely saying, yeah, come and hang out with me again. Yeah, David, David, you got any quick comments on episode three before we kick over to number four? Well, well I think you gentlemen covered it pretty well. I guess I would just say the main thing about the, the story with the manager and the and uh, sorry, and Franz 
um, really at the crux of it, it's just about kind of fulfillment, isn't it, in your job, in that sometimes your the the needs of the company and the managers they don't really see the individual, do they, and what in ways that they can uh, get more fulfillment out of work. And I thought it's it's interesting that the that the chap Ernst he he picked this role because it was of strategic value to him, but it wasn't really what he wanted to do. And how he, uh, the, the kindness and the cooperation that uh, ultimately he works with Franz to help them both to achieve uh, a more, more fulfilling situation at work. And I think that's like a real key sort of thing. And I, I think kind of Joshua t and William touched on that really nicely. Um, so it's a really, really, really nice uh, episode, and I think it shows things that, you know, there aren't sort of clear-cut villains and uh, and heroes in this, which I think is nice. It's just really down-to-earth uh, about that, uh, that uh, cooperation in the workplace, which is really nice. Excellent. All right. Well, William, we're going to get right back to you to walk us into episode four, Harold and Monica, uh, a wedding and a divorce. <laughs> sure. You know, I, I had uh, one take about this thought because Fassbender says it. Uh, there's these great quotes on the back of the discs, uh, packaging and the arrow from him from an interview in 1972. There's one where he just says, I love all these characters. It's not just the lead four, but I love all of them. And I often think, yeah, but how can you love Rudiger? Because this is the guy that's so clearly like the Aryan Nazi nightmare who they work with, who oh, they, yeah, very yeah. very tellingly isn't invited to the painting of the uh, kindergarten party. Mm -hmm. But he's like, it's almost a joke that every time he opens his mouth, it's terrible. And they, they put up with it. So I don't know if he's he's got much going on for him. And there's even the, there's a, a comment a, a, on the Criterion, which I watched on the channel. There's a, a, a interview about the film. And the interview, the person who's being interviewed says that, yeah, there's even good people up at the top and that nice guy at the very end. I'm like, no, 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 no. They know that that's a, a hollow victory. And mm -hmm. there's uh, getting ahead of ourselves. I think this is still an important theme, but there's importance to the fact that when that guy says, no, this is we have our own reasons. Uh, no need to thank me. And Joachim gets it and just says goodbye. He's like, okay, well then if this is completely transactional, then I have no interest in you as a human being. And I think that's something mm -hmm. that it was very odd to see this commentator in the criteria not really seem to see that the film was uh, overtly condemning that character, despite the fact that they played ball. They were playing ball still for their own structural reasons. Um, so here's, but we're going to talk about weddings. Um, so episode four, the one where they get married, in it. But, <laughs> yes. but not before, but not before Fassbinder's legend Brigitte Mira can show up and play Marion's mother who disapproves <laughs> almost instantly mm -hmm. of the relationship with Jochen. Very, very tragic. But after a while, all that works out, though there is still some tension between Marion and Jochen as they start to get to know each other better and see, wait, would domestic life actually work for us? Do we have the same interests and friends and how will that work out? But they spend a very beautiful soapy sitcom -y amount of time apart from each other. And as Jochen spends plenty of time alone realizing he needs nothing but this woman in his life, 
their reunion is a beautiful moment, classic mm-hmm. Hollywood style. She's expecting him on the phone, and he walks in through the door. And all is well. Ermgard Elkenig is put in her place once again. <laughs> but she's going to have a bit also of fun hearing, herself. And they're also each hearing warnings from all of their friends and confidants mm-hmm. that marriage is terrible. It'll change everything. We were all just like you. It's going to be a grind, you know. But they plow ahead anyways, which I think isn't that the, how life is, right? <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good structural aspect of the show in terms of keeping unity in the individual episodes. That each episode has one or two plots that even if... That's not the main plot. Everybody's talking mm-hmm. about it. So mm-hmm. this one is called Harold and Monica. So the, the the plot really does center in a lot of ways around that divorce that she would like to have from her terrible husband. But in that structure, uh, it's not always conversations, you know, with those two characters. It's very often Monica talking to one of her relatives and trying to get help or her relatives talking about how they can help her, which is one of the subplots of this fantastic climactic party sequence where mm-hmm. at this at this moment with Oma's help Harold realizes that he has no reason to stay in this like he he almost I think acknowledges no I would just be being a needless villain to stay in this relationship which is an interesting moment of a character who previously was to me all evil I mean it's hilarious his conversation with his fellow um, fascist stooge friend at dinner there it's a wonderful but not that I'm sympathetic towards him, but I'm like, okay, he at least understands that his villainy was completely pointless and has no further <laughs> need. And he's right. willing to remove himself from the situation and after this point, the entire series. But this party is a wonderful set piece, which lasts the the predominant final portion of episode four, where all of our characters, for the most part, are present, many of them meeting each other for the first time. And we have my favorite type of film, which is the ensemble full of uh, people in a party all hanging out and chatting with each other. I sure. will always watch a film where this happens. It will always please me. And Would, would you guys mind if I just start laughing uncontrollably all through this bit <laughs> while you talk about it? <laughs> yes, who, so who is that? I, we even have characters we've never met before who, who've come into the spotlight. And, and honestly, in spite of the fact that I felt like we, uh, our guy Ernst was getting a little queer-coded, he does seem to have a very nice little relationship developing with the giggly lady. So good for him. But we also get Ermgard and Rolf's uh, burgeoning romance, which we'll title our next episode. And all of these moments are fully explored. Thankfully, we've had three episodes to enjoy the geography of Wolf and Kete's house. So in order to really understand what it's like, we we actually like, oh, yeah, that's the bathroom that they argued over earlier. And now it's actually, you know, functional here as France is trying to sober up very desperately. So there are all of <laughs> all of these aspects are basically the geography and the the personal Rolodex of this story all pay off in this section, which slowly decompresses as everybody gets tired and leaves and filters off all peppered with this wonderful emotional and musical landscape of fellow, you know, hit numbers like Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. The Platters will, of course, come back as an instrumental act in the next episode, which is kind of an interesting um, world continuity. And we also have Les Paul and Mary Ford's Via Con Dios, one of my very favorite mm-hmm. records, which mm-hmm. I was so excited to hear when I saw this film for the first time. Guy has good taste in music. Everybody collapses at the end. Um, and it's one of those moments where I recognized for myself, I think it is potentially possible that one's uh, wedding night does not always end in consummation if the party is, is too severe and too intense. 
<laughs> and it's it's almost beautiful that Jochen and Marian barely interact during that party except just to sort of say hey <laughs> and then walk past each other and then pass out and uh, sometimes it's like that and that's the effervescent beauty of this particular uh, wonderful episode where some tensions are you're walked over but at the end of the day um, one of the beauties of one of the beauties of this if we can compare it to Merchant of, of, uh, of Four Seasons is that um, no one drinks in a way that is ever threatening or unpleasant in this entire five episodes everybody's drinking is always encouraged and when people are completely drunk beyond the point of it being healthy and i would normally say no this person should go home now uh <laughs> they're welcomed at any table to hang out with people of any age and gender and any combination of personalities or foreknowledge and it's kind of a little utopia this whole this whole film in terms of a lot of things and i think um uh recognizing that healthy drinking is possible among all of these folks in the working class is a really nice gesture yeah i mean i think that utopian quality how everything just sort of works out uh if you just pull together in the same direction and somebody has a plan and it's usually these these fountains of native wisdom these these women primarily who sort of have the insight but you know it's Jochen making that little technical innovation getting the bonus which allows him to throw a little bit of a a shindig and gets everybody together you're right that that's that is the uh that is the uplift of this whole of this whole eight hours uh, of uh delightful cinema that Fassbender and crew put together uh, anybody else have any uh you know takeaway moments from uh from the wedding or anything else in episode four well there, there's one uh, bit, bit i uh just wanted to draw attention to which i thought was great and uh, william when you say about the, the effects of alcohol in this uh, in this series it, it seems predominantly just to make people perspire profusely <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah. uh, there's a one wonderful moment when um, uh, Gregor and uh, Jochen are, are uh, talking at the wedding and uh, uh, there's a, a comment about, uh, the, you know, Jochen asks Gregor about his wedding night and he says, oh, you know, I, I don't really remember. And then uh, Jochen says, well, w w surely you remember something so significant as your wedding night. And Gregor just very sort of um distantly says uh you'd be surprised what <laughs> what you forget what things you can forget <laughs> or something to that effect and i thought that was quite a little poignant and and um, powerful sort of moment so i just said i would highlight that because i really like that bit yeah. Gregor is my guy from this whole episode. That's, that's the one I identify with. <laughs> and as somebody who's probably not too far from his uh, age and stage in life, uh, yeah, I, I can vouch for that. He speaks the truth. <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful too because he's like, he's he's meant, he's a bit of a comic character and sometimes he kind of come across as, as being a bit sort of uh, uh, affable and almost maybe a bit yeah. sort of uh, simple. But in reality, you can see he's not at all that he's just sort of, you know, he's out of his love for, for Omar and for the, the people around him. He just sort of uh, accepts and sits back kind of knowingly and just kind of goes along with things uh, to a certain extent. So that's what I quite like about him because there's a lot more to him you can see than kind of meets the eye. So I, I quite think he's quite a wonderful character as well. All right, Josh, anything real quick from episode four? Shall we move on to episode five? Yeah, just really quickly. I, I love the ways that that Jochen and Marion do actually have to wrestle with some of their 
their disillusions with each other after uh, coming together. I think uh, it's not, uh, you know, as, as William said, it is sitcom fast when they, they come up come together. But I do appreciate that Fassbender isn't just um, allowing it to be a, uh, a smooth ride completely. And uh, I, I appreciate that we get Harold out, uh, that Harold really, to me, is... is one of the closest things we get to a, an actual villain in the film. And I appreciate that, you know, Harold, uh, that Fassbender doesn't, doesn't let this character who is abusive, he's abusive oh, to, totally. to yeah. Sylvie and to uh, Monica throughout the film, uh, that, that he doesn't uh, spend time trying to justify uh, Harold or trying to, um, to do much to, to do that. That this is that, that Harold really is the, the the closest we get to a villain he's he's a he's a more well-rounded character than we get than i i think we would get in another a piece but i think it's it's really rich yeah and even the fact that he does relent he does let monica get you know custody of sylvia he does grant the divorce which was all within his power to say no there is a degree of redemption you could even say in all of that um he's still a creep and a jerk and an ass but uh, <laughs> you know but he doesn't he doesn't dominate he's not this yeah. persistent dark cloud over the entire proceedings yeah. Yeah. all right well let's go ahead and talk about episode five this is Armgard and Rolf, as William's already kind of alluded to. And this is uh, the episode that does bring the series to a close, even though there were supposedly three more episodes even scripted. And as I was looking back at uh, Josh Brunsting's review of, of this film from 2018, when it was first doing the theatrical tour, even before the Criterion release was announced, Josh mentioned that there were there were rumors, at least of uh, of a fully published script of of the of those three episodes, at least in written form. But I've not been able to find any record of that. And I don't know if any of you guys have tracked that down. I I have I I, I do. There's this a okay. mention of it in the Arrow Arrow okay. booklet that that the the scripts are published in Germany. Okay in a collection of theater and film works from Fosbin. Does it have a summary of where things go? Because what I've heard is that the, the series was supposed to get darker uh, or kind of the more heavy tragedy that is, is kind of Fosbinder's calling card was eventually going to surface. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if William had a chance to watch it, but on the Arrow edition, there is a, uh, a little featurette on the, on the last disc uh, from Tony Raines, who's a, a film critic who does a lot of... Oh, sure. Uh, a lot of sort of uh, commentaries and little extra features on a lot of Blu-rays and things. But um, he uh, talks about that quite in depth. He goes over quite in depth about what the last three episodes uh, w would have included. And he's read the scripts. He does mention that the scripts have been published, but only in German. They've never been uh, translated into any other languages. Uh, maybe they will be someday. But, um, but he does go fairly in depth in talking about what was included in those last three episodes. And I have to say, personally, I'm kind of glad they didn't make them because I think overall it sounds like they might have changed the dynamic of the series quite a bit. That's right. Uh, and so I'm very content to focus on what we do have and, and keep the conversation there. So let's talk about episode five. This is basically kind of culminating the labor uh, situation and with an announcement that the plant is going to relocate and it's going to go from 
kind of the northern part of town to the southern part of town, which for some people who might live that way, it's not that big of a deal. But the majority of workers would have a longer commute. Not all of these people have cars. And so there's a whole, you know, uh, quality of life issue that, that uh, comes from this uh, kind of unexpected relocation. And of course, as the timing has it, uh, Marion has just signed the lease on a new apartment that would have been in an ideal location, but now that the lease is signed, all of a sudden Yokin's workplace is going to be changing quite dramatically, and he would have an even longer commute than he than he would at the present time. Uh, there's also the situation with Monica now that she's been released uh, from her unhappy marriage. Uh, she's a young, attractive woman, and all of a sudden she's got some prospects to, to consider, one of which is Yokin's best friend, Monfred. Uh, and they actually have a little encounter at the wedding in episode four that seems like it could lead to something else. But <laughs> Monica has uh, kind of picked up uh, her uh, kind of Barry Gibb. I was kind of <laughs> the guy who came to mind. Uh, this boyfriend uh, with the flowing hair, the red uh, VW sports car. And he seems like a, a little bit of not a sugar daddy, but you know, certainly a, a rich playboy who can show Monica a good time and and maybe even have Sylvia well cared for if everything goes along that line. So you've got the, the work situation, you've got uh, uh, Yokan and Marion's marriage kind of getting started, but now they've got this little adversity to work around, where are we going to live? They come up with an idea that perhaps they can switch places with uh, Wolf and Kata, in, uh, whose apartment is centrally located, and so now you've got another little family you know, skirmish going on of uh, how can we convince uh, the parents to, to switch over to this new apartment and give uh, the young couple a little bit more of an advantage. Uh, you've got uh, Manfred's uh, kind of losing himself in, in alcohol to kind of uh, drown his sorrows at the fact that uh, he doesn't seem to have the, the chance with Monica that he was hoping for. Uh, and then you just got the, the, the whole situation about uh, the, the men at work and kind of uh, given an opportunity to put some of their proposals into practice at the current location so that when they make the move to the new spot, perhaps a little bit more of this cooperative uh, arrangement between labor and management could could come to fruition. Uh, yeah, so, so these are kind of the, the, the notes that they, uh, you know, that they strike in this final episode. Uh, and, you know, it, it ends on a very upbeat, up uh, you know, solution. You know, they are going to switch the apartments. Um, Monica and Manfred, after after Monica's relationship seems to have been just sort of the prelude to a scam, <laughs> as uh, he wants to get uh, Monica to invest in this, I think it was like a car wash business or something like that. Here comes Oma to the rescue to say, you know what, This let me meet this guy. Let me find out what's actually going on, because Monica is probably not used to thinking for herself or figuring out how to manage her money or do any of those kind of autonomous, responsible things uh, that she's been deprived of doing under the thumb of this oppressive brute of a husband. Uh, so she's kind of ripe for the picking, uh, easy to be fleeced and taken advantage of by this by this slick fellow. So all of these elements are, are moving along, and again, we're just watching these characters live their lives and 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 have these exchanges that just uh, fill the heart with joy and and provides uh, some pretty good and amusing entertainment so you know that's kind of my my summary of, of episode five a, a very enjoyable um, way to, to bring the series to a close as monica realizes that she's gonna have to move again 
uh, Ulma's work is done here, and that's basically where the whole series winds up. But before I wind up our conversation here, I want to give the rest of you all a chance to talk a little bit about maybe the conclusion of the series, its lasting impact. Let's uh, let's kick it over to William and give us some of your thoughts on uh, episode five. I think I think this is just a moment to to shout out how wonderful all these characters are. Wolf and Keita, who get a lot of wonderful mm-hmm. play in this, have a wonderful dynamic where, though he seems like he has his own boorish tendencies, he's almost always shown to understand that whatever he just did was wrong. And <laughs> he's teachable, I can't help right? But love him for that, <laughs> right? right. Uh, yeah. And his wife still is sweet mm-hmm. on him and knows that he's got so much to offer her and the seeing them you know get frisky in the fourth episode is so sweet seeing them yell at Jochen starts to become an endearing thing as opposed to an antagonistic experience so that's that's wonderful uh yeah and I also have to just again shout out that band that's playing uh standards but they're playing them specifically in the platters yep. arrangements against smoke it's mm-hmm. in your eyes and twilight mm-hmm. time and uh, for, as a, for a big platter's head like me, it's un- unmistakable. So uh, very, very fond of the fact that there's this overarching platter's cinematic universe in Fassbinder that is inescapable. Yeah, and, um, and, and he wasn't, he wasn't that, reluctant to, to play that card again because he had just done it in Patra von Kant. You know, it's like, hey, you know, that, that was great then. <laughs> it'll, it'll work just as well here. It's like Scorsese and um, this Rolling right. Stones. It's just gonna keep happening. Yeah, I've listen. No complaints. This this is all this is all perfect. Um, I appreciate too the fact that we do see these moments of tension. We, we see Hyokin make mistakes all throughout mm. the series. That in some cases would make you oh this guy's a bad piece of work. Like when he doesn't accept uh, that this young boy is maybe not his girlfriend's son or not. And she says hey if it was my son would mm. matter mm-hmm. to you. And he thinks about it and he says no. And he's it's like you see this guy maturing in real time in this yeah. relationship that's clearly good for him. And I think that happens here. And gosh, that image, that last image we get of Jochen and Marion and Ermgard and Rolf in the background, like realizing that these four are now going to live a more informed and more mature lives than they've done before, but that still potentially have struggles and difficulties to overcome i still feel like in spite of the fact that they end on this slightly pessimistic note of understand you're still part of a dire system we now have more solidarity than we did when we we opened this story so there's a, there's a lot of wonderful strength that arrives i think in that that ending and goodness yeah a, a wonderful final ending that explains that Yes, Oma is really in charge of everything. She is the <laughs> she's the core there. Uh, we haven't really talked much about Ermgard and Rolf, which the episode is named. Who wants to kind of pick up on what happens in Ermgard's love life <laughs> and how how it affects even her perspective on these shabby workers who get their hands dirty for a living? Well, I just you know I, I think something that that I really love about the series is that so many of the characters that we start off having frustrations with or reservations with or who are off-putting they get to have their own awakenings they get Mm -hmm. to have their own moments of of transformation and Ermgard is one of those Mm -hmm. Uh, she has been constantly needling uh, Marion over the course of the series uh, saying you know why would you want to to be in a relationship with a worker Uh, this is uh you know they're all uneducated they're all stupid um 
they'll never take you anywhere in life. You'll be dragged down with them, etc. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she still has a ways to go oh, yeah. by the end of the series. <laughs> yeah. But there's something really beautiful in her entry into the community. You know, uh, Jochen doesn't want her to be living with them, but he eventually relents. Uh, and we have seen this this shift in her over the course of the, the series. And I think we see this shift among other characters, even the supervisor, the one that we really don't like at work. When he sees that the, the workers have completed the the task and saved 138 hours, I think. Or I think that was what it 187, was. actually. 187 hours, yeah, yeah thank yeah, you. Right. Uh, when they have saved 187 hours and 38 minutes, that was the 38. Yeah. When they have saved 187 hours and 38 minutes of labor, and uh, as he sees that and reports it back to his boss... There's a grudging admiration for the men at that point. It's not that he's going to change his mind that um, that he thinks that the that workers are inferior to supervisors and to other people, but there's a, a slight shift in the character, and I I think that there are these little these little humanizing moments that we get from some of these characters. Armgard gets a really lovely arc and. It's lovely to see her her relationship begin to burgeon uh, with with uh, Rolf, and uh, she gets to show a little leg there too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, I I I love it. I think it's it's a, a beautiful beautiful thing. And you know, as, as as we've all been remarking at the end of the film, Fassbender is not painting a you know utopia he's very aware of the struggles that workers still face. He's very aware that there are, are real issues that people have to face. It doesn't mean that you do nothing though. It doesn't mean that you just resign yourself to saying this is the way it is. You still have to try to push back and try to change things. Um, so it's, it's a incredibly hopeful series. Um, but it also, acknowledges the existence of the the struggles that we all have to face yeah but there are possibilities that things could get at least a little bit better yeah excellent david you got any kind of summary comments you want to make about the series as we kind of get ready to wrap up the episode well well joshua just said it very beautifully there but i mean that 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 ending about that you can change things for the better if you kind of work together and you find some common ground and uh, I think that's a really great core message to take away from it. I mean, as I said, I'm really glad that the film ended here and that they didn't produce those last few episodes because I think this is, for me, is a really nice, perfect ending because it does leave it very hopeful and we, we have some nice resolutions to some storylines and it, and it just feels like a really nice place to stop it. And although it's a nice idea to think that there might be more because it's so enjoyable, I think it's also really a perfect place to stop it as well. So um, that's all I can say. I mean, I love this uh, a lot and I'm really glad for the opportunity to have revisited it probably a lot sooner than I would have otherwise. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I only you know got this set a couple of years ago and I watched it when I 
when it came came out but uh, it probably would have been a couple more years before I revisited it so it was really nice to to revisit it so soon and just reaffirm just how wonderful it really is and it's um I can't recommend it highly enough to to anyone out there to uh, pick it up and, and check it out because it's so good yeah right eight hours may seem pretty daunting you know and and again Fassbender films are you know, uh, very often very talky, um, you know, plot driven. I I think they're they're delightful. But you know, to to the casual viewer or listener who might just be wondering, is this really worth it? I, I hope we've made the case that this is this is eight hours that will fly by. Uh, you can break it down and into shorter installments, obviously, and space it out however you can. But and I, I will actually confess that I did a, a double speed rewatch on the Criterion channel yesterday morning. I went through all four episodes or all five episodes at two times the speed. I wouldn't recommend that for a first <laughs> viewing, but they do have that option there where you can just kind of jam through it. And uh, that was that was a kind of a fun speed rush through this uh, pretty delightful story. So, and, yeah, maybe some people have lost a little bit of respect for me for having made that confession, but <laughs> but it's out How there. How could yeah. you? How could you? <laughs> but, but I will say, you know, um, and and in tracking Fassbender's career from those early days, which were pretty acerbic and pretty, you know, pretty bitter and downcast, uh, you know, I, I I really love this side of him, uh, and I have a lot more of his later films that have come after this that I have not yet seen, including World on a Wire. I actually watched the first episode, but just I know I I, I know I've watched it, but I just never got around to finishing it, and uh, that'll be coming up soon. Is that coming up? Oh yeah, it's a seventy-three, oh, so it'll be you know. It's yeah, so we'll, we'll good. Be getting the, we'll be getting the band together for that one for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, sign me up. I'd love to talk about that one. That's brilliant. Yes, but but anyway, yeah, Fassbender. Uh, he was certainly in in peak form and had so many great films ahead of him. But uh, the fact that he could just kind of pump out this this series. And uh, in between everything else he was going, uh, it's just, uh, I will never cease to marvel at how this guy was not, this was not schlock. He was not just, you know, you know, cranking it out just for the sake of volume. There, there was thought, creativity. I mean, he, he wrote the screenplay, even though this was commissioned material and he had some guidelines that he had to work within. Uh, that whole making of project, which we probably don't have a lot of time to get into right now, is also another really interesting uh, aspect to the series. This WDR, this this TV network that wanted to make some kind of socially, politically progressive entertainment that would kind of give people some food for thought. These family series, I think, William, you talked a little bit about how this was so prevalent in David and, and European TV as well. Uh, Fassbinder kind of took that formula, put his own little stamp on it, brought in his his familiar faces, found some casting from a previous generation of actors, and produced what I think very uh, clearly can be considered a masterpiece. You know, maybe not his greatest ever film, but there are so much to choose from, and I haven't seen Fassbinder films that I enjoy more than this. This has just been a really... Uh, life-affirming and, and really mm-hmm. celebratory experience, and I really appreciate that they gave us the context and the excuse to have this uh, very wonderful, enjoyable conversation. Thank yes, you. David, may, may I offer a, a moment of zen from <laughs> Please Fosbury do, yes, himself? yes. This is one of those quotes on the Arrow box. Grandma and Gregor are two people who are doing something with their old age. I wish for my grandma that I had thought of Grandma and Gregor 20 years ago, 
and my grandma would have seen it and wouldn't vote for the German Conservative Party today and would be busy t- and and would be busy with something other than dying. Mm. Words so of deep wisdom. That's, that's, yes. Yeah. It's what he yes. knows. This is still our boy. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that's about as fitting of a closing note as I can come up with. So, does anybody else have any final comments before we uh, wrap her up? I just want to say that this was a uh, not my favorite week, uh, and coming to watch this every night uh, as I was uh, preparing for the the podcast and revisiting the series, as I, I think I said earlier in the the uh, episode that this was a balm for my soul, and mm. that's exactly what it was. This yeah. was just. Uh, it reaffirms my faith in humanity. Uh, it reaffirms my uh, faith in the ways we can connect with one another. Um, it's a beautiful series, and uh, this is what I come to art for. Uh, is is this the 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 ways that it can really uh, touch us and move us? And um, yeah, this this may be one of my favorite things that's ever been put. Uh, in the cinematic medium uh, as I uh, as I'm watching it uh, again so I think I need to revisit this more frequently than I have fantastic all right well listeners thank you for checking us out and for uh, you know indulging us with your with your time and attention Um, our next episode is going to be a fascinating change of pace Brian De Palma's Sisters this is an early film of his it's been also an early spine number in the Criterion Collection so I'll try to pick up the pace and get that one out there fairly soon, but that's what's up next on Criterion Reflections. I also want to say my uh, Inside the Box podcast is going to be talking about the Kotze trilogy. Me and Trevor are going to be getting together in early May to record that, so I'm going to look forward to visiting those films once again. Uh, so we got some fun stuff coming up. Uh, Josh, you got any updates on the uh, Criterion Channel surfing coming up? Yeah, I'm in the middle of... Um... Well, trying to edit down my latest conversation on the uh, films of Carlos uh, Saura. So we're working on the second part of that. And then I'll be recording uh, uh, at the end of this next week uh, with Celeste de la Cabra about uh, the second conversation in our series on the films of Ishiro Honda. Fantastic. Look forward to that. David, can you leak titles that are coming up in Film Swap or do you have a new episode around the corner for us? Well, actually, we planned to do an anime episode oh, uh, okay. not that long ago, and uh, but it didn't work out because Jonathan didn't have access to the films. Okay, he couldn't. We, we couldn't. They're a bit harder to get in the UK yeah. sometimes. You don't have it. You can't swap it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> exactly. Well, I tried to find ways okay. of getting him the stuff, but it just the logistics wasn't uh, working out, so we ended up uh, postponing that. So we're going to do that. And I've actually, we've got uh, the next couple episodes, uh, I've actually lined up some guests for the first time. Oh, cool. And so we've, okay. we've got some uh, some interesting people coming on to talk about, uh, well, our next episode is entitled, because uh, they've all got themes, you see. So we, we've called the next one Girl Power, and that's what it's called. Right. And uh, we've got a, a really uh, interesting guest, and I guess I guess I'll spoil. But one of the films we're talking about is uh, uh, the Passion of Joan Joan of Arc. Oh, okay. Uh, well, there's a little teaser yeah. for us. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. William, yeah. I know that the Utopia Opera Company did some things at the beginning of April. Uh, what, what's uh, happening in your creative career these days? In June, on the ninth and tenth of June, we are presenting 
concerts of movie music, and this will include songs from films such as The Wizard of Oz, Young Girls of Rochefort, La oh, Flore, uh, The Gold Diggers of 1933. Nothing is safe. Anything is included. Where a Disney okay. songs, songs that show up in the in the background made by a fake band in the movie. If it was written for a movie and has singing, it's invited. So we have a concert of movie stuff in New York in uh, early June with lots of Criterion crossover, I guarantee. Do, do these get rec- recorded, William, or is there some way that someone like over here in the UK could could see this or participate in some way? Absolutely. It's all in the works in order for us to record excerpts or full shows, whatever it might be, and get them on YouTube. Oh, brilliant. Okay. All right. Well, it's Fantastic. great to hear all this creative energy bursting forth. So uh, thank you again, my guests, and thank you again, listeners, for checking us out. We'll be back to you real soon. So for now, let's call it a wrap. Eight hours. Don't make a day, but it does make for a pretty fantastic film. We're done here now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye.